We're continuing uh, this morning in our study through the book of Philippians. This has been uh, a heavy week, a challenging week. We have those from time to time. Um, many of you in our congregation uh, who have been here know the Combs family, are close, uh, and have known Pete through his involvement here, many different levels. Uh, the news of his passing hit us in a very uh, close uh, and difficult way this week. And I'm always amazed when we come to the text and we look at the scriptures that, that God has intended for us to share together, how they always seem to match the moment, exactly what we need. Uh, and today, uh, the text we're going to be looking at just centers us squarely and wholly on the example of Jesus. And it is an example that we are truly in need of as a faith community today. So before we dive into Paul's words and seek to unpack the questions uh, that he has for us, do we have a scripture memory slide today? Our slides, there we go. Our slides seem to be a little uh, squared in different directions than I was expecting today, but we'll get there. All right, Philippians chapter two, three to four. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Philippians 2, 3 to 4. So we approach our text this morning with heavy hearts and Paul is writing, and really as we gather together, there's some questions that we want to investigate and explore in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 18, which is where we'll be today. The first question is this, as a Christian community, whose life is to serve as our preeminent example? Second is, what was it about the mind and the attitude of Jesus that Paul encourages the community of faith to put into practice? Next, what are the patterns of a life that brings God pleasure? Then how do these patterns express themselves in our day-to-day -day lives? And finally, how can we live for God's pleasure in a way that has great effect in our world? So before we open the text this morning, let's pray and ask God to guide and direct our time. Father, thank you for your word. It is powerful, it is relevant, it is active. Lord, our community needs it, especially in a supernatural way today. Our hearts are heavy uh, from the events of the last week. Lord, we pray for peace, for comfort, for Ruth, for Eleanor and the children, for the whole Combs family, for friends for the many who were involved. We thank you for the legacy of a man who loved you, a man who left behind uh, a family that loves you. Lord, for his involvement, his vibrant participation in the ministries of CNBC, and we give you thanks. Lord, we turn to your word in times like these for comfort, we know that you can do that. We know your spirit's working even now. So we pray as we unpack this text today uh, that you would just go before us, that you would guide and direct our study. 
might it be honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we did last week, I would ask for you to stand as we read the text together this week. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 18. This is Paul writing to the church in Philippi. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but also much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Thank you. You may be seated. Paul is continuing to pull on this thread of how to live with effect in this world, even through times of turmoil, grief, and discomfort. He has leaned into his own example earlier in his letter as one who was under house arrest in Rome. He's continuing to carry on his ministry demonstrating his care for others with joy even while he is imprisoned. He's reminded us of how our difficult circumstances do not limit God's ability or plan to work through us. It was evidenced in the way that he, even though he was in prison, continued to be faithful in his witness to the Roman Praetorium guards who were overseeing him. Paul's hopeful anticipation is this. If churches desiring to remain faithful can truly grasp their joy in Christ, even while walking through the long suffering that is part of this world, then Paul is convinced that light shining, world affecting Christian unity is possible. So. He has encouraged the people of God to have this unity. This is where we were at last week. And he's encouraged this by calling us to look away from our own ambitions, ceasing to elevate our own circumstances and looking towards the interests of others. 
Verses 5 to 8 come on the heels of instruction that has challenged the church to, in humility, consider others as more important. So now, Paul is giving the preeminent example regarding the highest ideal for the application of verses 3 to 4. What's following in these verses is what is considered as elevated prose. Some scholars have determined that it might be poetic, even lyrical. We're quite uncertain about the particular literary genre of verses 5 through 11. But we know that it is elevating the person and the work of Christ. In today's writing, we might say that the author has given this particular section of his book, letter, or other writing special emphasis. It is as if Paul is saying, okay, church, enough about us, enough about my situation and circumstances. We're now turning the fullness of our attention to Jesus. And as such, this is one of the most beautiful and powerful Christ-themed statements in all of the Bible. Friends, the reality is this, for the Christian community, our most significant example has always been and will always remain the example of Jesus. The word that Paul uses in verse 5 that the ESVs has translated as mind, in other versions it's translated as attitude, it encompasses the idea that Jesus' life gives us the framework for not just how an individual should form their own attitudes and behaviors, but also how the entire corporate Christian community should frame and form their attitudes, behaviors, and ministries. This way and this priority of living has been titled by some Christian scholars and academics as cruciform or Christoform living. Beginning in verse 6, we're confronted with this elevated position of Jesus. So if you look at verse 6, it says, Who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. Jesus did not give up his title or his identity as God to come to earth. He came as fully God. As it says in the verse, he existed in the form of God, but he did not consider or hold on to, like a power play, his elevated position as God. Church, this, looks, this is one of the, the realities that makes the incarnation such a marvelous and miraculous event in human history. It is that God, in the fullness of his deity as Jesus, he came to physically dwell with us. Jesus' deity is always his. He never had to worry about losing his power or authority or grip on his creation. He was never less than fully in control when he was on earth. And I find this understanding to make his life and his sacrificial death even more powerful, more meaningful, and more significant. And so if we consider that Jesus is never less than fully God, 
what are we to make of verse 7? It seems like a paradox. Does it not? Take a look. In the form of God, fully God, not counting equality with God, something to be grasped. Look at what it says in verse 7. He empties himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. And so while verse 6 communicates much about the deity of Jesus, verse 7 is calling forth Jesus's humanity. He is truly one of us as well. Jesus's deity and his humanity are two equally true and wholly unified concepts that must remain entangled for eternity. This is part and parcel of the mystery of God. Friends, it's part and parcel of what makes God who God is. And, you know, as God's creation, we can marvel at this. We should. We should stand in awe and wonder. We should be amazed at this reality. But we must be cautious and reverent in our approaches to trying to understand it. The Proverbs say it is the glory of God to conceal a matter and the wisdom of fools to seek it out. And sometimes when reflecting on how the deity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus worked together or coincided while he was on the earth, we can get into spaces that are difficult. And we're not going to go into the weeds of the kenosis of Christ today. It's a big theological concept that talks about how Jesus was both fully God and fully man at the same time or what he veiled or gave up when he came to earth. But if you're interested in, in that topic, I'm going to give you permission to do something really quick. You can take out your phones and snap a picture of the slide behind me and do some research this week. Um, and then you can email me with your thoughts. Not that I'll have any dynamic or fun or exciting answers for you. I may agree or disagree with you uh, on one level or the other. But this slide is a compilation of positions from uh, age, strong, systematic theology. And there is great unity in the academic, uh, Christian academic circles surrounding some form of adherence to the view in bold in the middle up there. Now, other sisters and brothers in Christ might prioritize other views on this list, uh, but I like to consider that Christ gave up the independent exercise of his divine attributes. And so a way that we might summarize an understanding of this is included in the second slide, which you also might want to take a picture of if you can't write really, really fast. I know some of you, we go through the slides too fast, and that's okay, but... The act of kenosis, as stated in Philippians 2, may therefore be properly understood to mean that Christ surrendered no attribute of deity, but that he did voluntarily restrict their independent use in keeping with his purpose of living among men and their limitations. I like the way that that is stated. And if you would like, uh, I would be happy this week to share these two slides with you. You can reach out to me and I can send them along with you through email. But what I want to focus on today is staying within the context of Paul's purpose 
for this part of his letter. If Jesus is to be the preeminent example for the Christian community and the individual believer, for that matter, what was it about the mind and the attitude of Jesus that Paul encourages the community of faith to put into practice? When Jesus took on human form, he exemplified the humility that Paul called the church to demonstrate in verse 3, you look back at verse 3, you can find that word humility and then you can jump forward into verse 8 and see how Jesus exemplified it. Look at verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Church, the greatest example of humility that the world has ever known was the example that Jesus demonstrated on the cross. That's the greatest. And so if we want to summarize verses six to eight, you can peek back through quickly with me. Jesus exists as God, but he empties himself, humbling himself, becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. Now, friends, in the eyes of the world, a life and a death like the life and death of Jesus would have been viewed with shame and contempt. The nature of our world system and the power dynamics that we live within, they call us to grab hold of power and hold on to it at all costs. And isn't it amazing that Jesus does the opposite? He empties himself. He gives away his life for the sake of others who are less fortunate and less advantageous than he. Friends, this was me. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I was lost. I had no equality with God. Jesus emptied himself and he gave up his life and he died for me. Verses five to eight in Philippians chapter two describe the patterns in our life and in our death that honor God. Therefore, as verse 9 communicates, God exalts Jesus and he gives him the name that's above every name. This is the name, Lord Jesus. And now again, remember, we've talked about this. We, we really harped on this last week. I know it's hard. This section of scripture is hard, but we have to remember the people that Paul is talking to. The people who inhabited Philippi in this particular area of Macedonia. These were proud soldiers, proud citizens of Rome. They were men and women who were ready and willing to bow and genuflect at the name of Caesar. It was Caesar who deserved their utmost loyalty and love. Paul's flipping their priorities. He's redirecting their allegiances. 
He's changing the priority of their citizenship. No longer do we bow to Caesar, but every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth now bows to the Lord Jesus. Take a look at verse 11. It's not just the behaviors and postures. It's not just that every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth. But verse 11 says it's going to affect words too. Knees bow, yes, but tongues confess as well. No longer saying Caesar is Lord. Now we say Jesus is Lord. Amen? Paul has reached up. He's grabbed hold of the person of Jesus. He's placed him at the center of his own life. And he set Jesus up as the central example for the Christian community. Friends, this Jesus is our Lord. And I think we need to ask this morning this question. Do you believe it? Do you believe this? You see, there's this troubling dynamic that's embedded in verses 10 and 11. Paul says that every every knee will bow. He says that every tongue will confess, but he does not say that every person will believe. He does not say that all hearts will be open to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Now, church, we know this truth. We know that one day Jesus is going to return. And that on that day, all will be confronted with the truth that he was exactly who he said he was. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Some will bow and confess unto an eternal inheritance in heaven. Others will realize a more difficult and painful separation in hell. There's an account in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. All of the nations will be assembled before him and he will separate people one from the other. Like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And go to verse 41. He will say to those on his left, depart from me, you accursed, into the eternal fire. That has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will depart into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. Friends, I think right now. Right here. In our service. Whether you're online or whether you're with us in person today. I think it's an appropriate time. To invite you to no longer provoke God in unbelief. If you're here today, if you're listening online and you've not bowed your heart and your life unto Jesus and confessed him as Lord and turned to him in belief as your savior. 
then let's do it right now. Repent and turn from sin and find the gift of life, the life in Jesus alone. And we're going to do this right here and now in the middle of the sermon today. This is the right place for it. It's the perfect opportunity. You've, you've just read verses 5 to 11, one of the most magnificent examples of Jesus in all of the scriptures. He came and he died for you. He came and he died for me. He didn't have to do it. The glory of his father compelled him and his love for us compelled him. Everybody with me, just bow your heads. Close your eyes right now. If you're here today and Jesus is not the savior of your life, you have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I need you to know that we are saved to marvelous and abundant life in Jesus. The one and only king of life. It's Jesus that has the ability to save us from our sins and set us free from death's torment. And I ask you to pray right now as I'm going to pray. Just follow along silently. Father, today... I recognize right here that I have a great need for you. I look at the patterns of my own life and I can see sin. And I can see an allegiance to an old way of life and living that I no longer want to follow. Father, today I repent from those ways. I repent from my sin, from my selfishness, from my pride. And I turn to you. And I trust in the marvelous power of your son, Jesus. And I give myself wholly to him. From this moment on in my life, I want to follow him for your glory. I want to learn how to love as I have been loved by him. I want the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit to come into my life and to transform my mind and renew my heart. Today, I'm changing teams. No longer do I want to be defined as a child of darkness, but today I want to be known as a child of God. Would you come into my life? Would you save me? I trust in your son Jesus alone. It's in his name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer today in your pew, I'm going to challenge you to do something. Whether you prayed it in your pew, whether you prayed it online, however you prayed it today, I'm going to challenge you to do something. I'm going to challenge you. There's a, there's a white card. 
I believe in your weekly, I think there may even be a card in the pew. At the end of the service, we give an opportunity to drop things in the boxes in the back. Fill that card out for me and drop it in the back and we'll have a staff member or pastor contact you this week. If you're watching, if you're watching online and you prayed that prayer with us online today, there's a link in the description box. You can click that link, fill out the card and we'll receive it and we'll have somebody contact you this week and pray with you. God is glorious. Amen? Amen. Jesus is magnificent. Amen? Amen? There is no greater love in all of this world than the love of Jesus. Amen? Amen? So there is a rhythm or a pattern to the way that Paul writes his letters. Following the example of Jesus, he wraps up verses 5 and 8 with the transition in verse 9 when he writes, Therefore, God. And if you trace this line of thought, it's the idea that Jesus lived in this manner. Therefore, God elevated him as Lord for God's glory. So as we move to verse 12, Paul draws us towards an understanding of our appropriate response with the words, therefore, beloved. So what are the patterns of a life that brings God pleasure? Paul begins with obedience in verse 12. He calls the community of faith to obedience, both in his presence and in his absence. He's challenging them in verse 12, if you take a look, to work out your salvation with awe and reverence or fear and trembling. And as we previously explored, living as Jesus lived is a scary and troubling proposition, especially in a world that largely fails to honor or dignify the postures of humility, sacrifice, and selflessness that go along with Christianity. So in a very realistic way, we work out our salvation in fear and trembling because to the world, this kind of living looks like foolishness, even weakness. But we're reminded that it's the power of God at work within us. We sung about that this morning. We see this truth of God further pressed out in verse 13. Take a look. For the one bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort for the sake of his good pleasure is God. Live with the desire and put forth the effort to live faithfully submitted to Jesus in this world and take great comfort in knowing that it is the power of God that is doing the work in and through us to give him pleasure, bring him pleasure. Within verses 12 to 13, then, we find this compilation of life patterns that bring God pleasure. There's obedience, there's perseverance, there's Courage, there's faithful reliance on God. When faith communities are embodying these attitudes and behaviors, we're unified. That was a big piece of Paul's letter right before this, that we be unified. Well, when we're doing these things within our communities and as individuals, we can be unified. And we shine. The testimony of God brightly within our towns and neighborhoods. And if these attitudes and behaviors seem like lofty ideas and they're hard for us to understand how to apply, 
Paul is going to move once again to give concrete applications for both our personal and corporate lives. What do these patterns look like as lived out in our day-to-day lives? Well, we don't have to look any further than verses 14 to 18. If a Christian community is truly elevating the example of Christ and God is working through them for his good pleasure, then verses 14 to 18 write out for us how this might work itself out. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. Well, we might not. We might just get to the first line of verse 14. Stop there. We'll see. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Stop. <laughs> Hard stop. Another translation says without complaining. So that you may be blameless and pure. Children of God without blemish, though you live in a crooked and perverse society in which you shine as lights in the world. Now think back to the Israelites of the Old Testament, especially in Exodus and Numbers. Whenever there was grumbling and arguing and complaining, how did it turn out for them? No, not very good. Even individually, poor Moses, he had to lead these stiff and crook-necked people. And he struck the rock because he was upset. It didn't turn out too good. Anytime in the Old Testament where we see this complaining and grumbling and arguing, it's not going well for the community. And we're reminded when we see Paul's words here that one clear evidence of Christian maturity, both as individuals and as a faith community, is the absence of grumbling and arguing in our personal and corporate lives. There's a big application right there. Now, how does this apply to me? Well, <laughs> I'm going to take it, lock it in this week. It's going to be at the forefront of my heart and my mind anytime I'm quick to argue, grumble, or complain. And it's interesting. We sometimes get into this pattern where we grumble and complain or we argue thinking that we're somehow setting ourselves apart or behaving differently. Because we're grumbling and complaining and arguing. Shouldn't we be? Because like, look at them and how they are living. The right response to grumble. And Paul's saying, no! No, actually the opposite is true. When we participate in the grumbling and complaining and arguing, even when we think we're setting ourselves apart, we risk culpability in the same attitudes and similar behaviors we are complaining about we're arguing against. We, in, in other words, can become very much like the machine or system we find ourselves raging against. Children of God are to look and think and act differently in this crooked and depraved generation or society. As lights who are filled with the light and light of Jesus. That should be expressing itself in our abounding joy, in our steadfast hope, in our resilient faith, and in our extravagant love. None of those qualities promote, allow for, facilitate complaining or arguing. 
We can love people while disagreeing with them. We can have hope even when our preferred politician may not be in office. Yes, we can. We can. We can live with great faith even as persons or systems or institutions around us fail us and let us down. Sometimes people let us down. We can still live with great faith. We can have great joy even when facing significant pain or injustice. This was Paul's example. It was also the example of Jesus. Verse 2 and 3 of Hebrews 12, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For what? For the joy. That's a big word. For the joy set out before him, he endured the cross. Disregarding its shame. And has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Think of him who endured such opposition against himself by sinners so that you may not grow weary in your souls and give up. Church, don't give up. Don't give up. It's hard. Things don't seem right out there. We all talk about it on Sunday morning, right out there. It feels weird. There's a lot of unusual things happening in the world and we're called to live as light and to have effect and to look different and to sound different and to be different and to have hope even when it looks ridiculous. Don't give up. Do not grow weary. Thank you, Helen. Rather than participating in the ways of the world, Paul's challenge is to take hold of a better way. Look at verse 16. By holding on to the word of life, take hold of the better way. Grab hold of the word of life so that on the day of Christ, this is Paul, I will have reason to boast that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. When we grab hold of and cling to the word of life, that is Jesus, as he's revealed and communicated in his word, then we can be a source of joy and boasting for those who labored so diligently on our behalf. Friends, there are people here in our community, young people and old people. There are people here in our community who've invested greatly in our spiritual lives. They've poured, they've been broken and poured out for us. Think about our Sunday school teachers. Think about our Awana leaders, our youth leaders, our mentors, our friends, our aunts and uncles, grandparents, there's so many. They've lived broken and poured out for us and they've invested energy into our lives to watch us grow spiritually and they've labored through prayer and pain, watching us go off in different directions being sad for us, having their hearts broken as we make decisions that are dishonoring to God. And they've persevered in their prayer. And they've continued to reach out. And they've continued to pour in. And when we grab hold of the word of life, and when we live differently, and speak differently, and think differently than the world does, 
We show them encouragement in that their labor has not been in vain. Friends, your labor is not in vain. I've said this before and I've said, I stand here today on the shoulders of countless men and women who have built into my life. I'm not here by myself. You'd do far better having those women and men up here speaking to you than me. I'm here because Jesus brought them into my life. And I could stand up here and name names. We'd be here a long time. But I'm just letting you know I'm not here by myself. And all of you have had a significant impact in somebody else's life. Your labor is not in vain. Keep on going. Don't stop. Even when it seems hopeless. Even when it feels hopeless. Don't stop praying. Don't stop calling. Don't stop sharing the word of God. Keep on going. Paul knew his time was drawing near. He knew. His mind turns to his soon coming death. His word pictures are drawing on familiar images related to Israel's sacrificial ceremonies where the last act of the sacrificial ceremony was for the priest to pour out. He'd take the wine that was left in the ceremony and he'd pour it out beside the altar. His imagery is also taking us back to Jesus' life when this expensive perfume was broken and poured out as an offering and a preparation for Jesus' death in verse 17. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice together with all of you. And in the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice together with me. Friends, Paul had embodied the habit of daily dying. He was living as a man broken and poured out for the God that he loved and the people that he was called to serve. And in this, he could rejoice because he had over the course of his Christian life been found and would be found faithful. Friends, I have this written in my office. I keep it written in my office because I think a minister of the gospel, a pastor today, a missionary, a nonprofit, Christian nonprofit leader, they need to know that the success of one's ministry isn't determined by numbers or by growth, but it's determined by consistent seasons of faithfulness over the course of many, many years. Don't give up. Paul's glad. He's rejoicing. He's shining in his imprisonment, not because he had the biggest or brightest platform, not because he had the most followers on Instagram or be real, not because he was the most popular or famous teacher or preacher or author that was around in that day, although many people loved him. He's rejoicing and glad because his life was being used of God to have great effect in the world that God had planted him in and called him to share and live the good news of Jesus with. And church, if we want to live for God's pleasure in a way that has great effect in our world, then as individuals and as the Christian community, we would do well in following in the example of Jesus and Paul. Laying down our lives for one another living as broken and poured out individuals and Christian communities, 
seeing and savoring the great faith, hope, love, and joy that we've been shown and given in Christ Jesus, and then sharing that faith, hope, love, and joy with others. Church, this is the way that we live with attitudes that shine and have great effect in the world that God has planted us in and called us towards with a purpose. Our team is going to come today and we are going to continue to worship with a song as we seek to build a life and live a life that brings God great pleasure. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you again for the example and testimony of Jesus, our Savior, who showed us the better way. He spoke it. He lived it all the way to the cross. Lord, Paul picked up on his example in his life, and he used those things to encourage a church that was at risk of growing hopeless, perhaps even apathetic maybe even indifferent in their world. Lord, we want to be a place that shines. We want to be a people who have great effect in our communities. We want to burn brightly for you, and we need your spirit to help us from growing weary in this world while we do it. We're leaning on you for that today. In Jesus' name, amen.